You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. And I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, sitting in for Dr. Stephen Edelman. What are regulatory guidelines for the Artificial Pancreas Project? Joining us to discuss the need for regulatory guidelines in the Artificial Pancreas Project is Assistant Vice President and Director of Glucose Control Research at the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, Dr. Alan Kowalski. Dr. Kowalski, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me. I take care of a lot of people with type 1 and type 2 and gestational diabetes, and people struggle just to get to target. What's the opportunity for the artificial pancreas? Even people with relatively good A1Cs uh, spend a significant portion of the day uh, hyperglycemic. Uh, For example, a person with an A1C of 7 probably spends almost 10 hours a day above 180 milligrams per deciliter and almost an hour a day below 70 mg per deciliter. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, more than half of the people in the United States aren't reaching A1C7. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of work uh, to do. And I think that the, the real uh, excitement around the artificial pancreas is that it has two potential uh, benefits. One is improving glucose control because we know we need to do better. We need to reduce the risk for uh, the development of uh, diabetic complications, which comes from hyperglycemia, as we all appreciate, as well as the day-to-day uh, burden of hypoglycemia. And secondarily, I think the nice thing about why we're so excited about an artificial pancreas is just the amount of work that goes into maintaining glucose control. So what we've seen in the studies to date is artificial pancreas systems can work. That is taking off-the-shelf continuous glucose monitors that are currently approved by FDA and used by some patients, off-the-shelf insulin pumps, and adding a, a what we call a control algorithm. That would be the software that would sit in the pump that interpreted that continuous glucose information, and it added some automation to the insulin pump. And I think it could be transformative. I think we're making great progress, and now the key is to have a regulatory pathway that allows us to deliver to patients because that's, you know, we need this to be more than just research. We need patients to uh, realize the uh, potential we see here. There's been actually some successful experience in this in inpatient hospital settings. Could you tell us a little bit about that in terms of moving it out to the clinic? What they've shown pretty much across the board is that by adding automation, that is using that computer software, uh, you can significantly improve time and target, that is reduce hyper and hypoglycemia automatically. And if you think of some of the, I'll just give you a couple of highlights. For example, a group at um, Stanford and the University of Colorado at the Barbara Davis Center have shown just simply on the hypoglycemia side by using some of these predictive algorithms, they can reduce hypoglycemia by about 84%. So uh, could you prevent all hypoglycemia or all hyperglycemia today? Probably not. And there are some technical issues in terms of insulin kinetics that make that a challenge. But could we do much, much better by adding another layer to um, people's daily management uh, routine, I I think absolutely, and the data supports that. Now, what needs to happen is we need to take this out into the real world, and I think that's the gist of uh, the discussion we've been having with FDA and a clinical recommendation panel that we've put together to uh, try to understand how we can take this out and really test this vigorously in the real world. 
Last fall, I know you and other members of JDRF and other organizations met with FDA and NIH to just to talk about this and get the framework together. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So we've been working closely and partnering with NIH and FDA for, for a number of years on this topic. And in November of last year, uh, FDA and NIH held a public meeting to talk about what are uh, the uh, safety and efficacy type of um, outcomes and, and mitigations we need to put in place to ensure that we can do this in a robust way and make sure that patients are safe as we uh, uh, roll out to more um, real-world uh, settings? And JDRF uh, participated in this meeting, and in fact, we convened a panel of experts we brought together an um, outstanding group of clinicians and researchers, both people who are seeing patients, many, many patients, and people who are in the research world, to think about that. And uh, at this FDA-NIH meeting, uh, presented uh, uh, some of their findings. And uh, there was uh, good consensus around a, a couple of key elements. One is the sequence. Obviously, you do want to test systems in an inpatient setting, make sure there are no bugs, uh, make sure that we understand how these systems are going to perform and the data looks good uh, uh, to, to move things forward uh, towards an outpatient setting. And ultimately, probably having an intermediate step that's semi-supervised, where you have uh, quick access to uh, clinical care prior to going to a fully um, uh, free-range, so to speak, um, study. I think in the terms of the patient population, that was another thing the clinical panel uh, felt strongly about, that we need to make sure that we subset patients, that the right patients are considered to be tested first, that um, have the least amount of risk. For example, people aren't, who aren't hypoglycemic unaware. Um, there are going to be um, safety elements that need to be built into the system. And if you do talk to patients and clinicians, you'll hear this uh, um, from both um, constituencies. I think we can do that. Uh, so, for example, insulin delivery limits. You could think of a pump that um, if you come up on uh, the system sensing that it's uh, delivering more insulin than would normally be required, that you would have checks and balances. And then finally, uh, a big part of the discussion was around the proper outcome measures. Obviously, in the initial studies of these systems, A1C may not be the right outcome. We may be doing these studies for a week at a time. So looking at uh, hypoglycemia risk, looking at time and target uh, versus A1C, um, uh, reduced burden on the patient, things like this, uh, were all things that the clinical uh, uh, panel uh, prioritized, and in our discussions with FDA, I think we're aligned that uh, these make sense as important steps uh, to take as we uh, move to outpatient testing of the systems. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, and I'm speaking with Dr. Aaron Kowalski. We're discussing the latest developments in the Artificial Pancreas Project. Yeah, you're, you've made it, I th a very important point there in terms of, uh, in terms of new parameters, new metrics, because A1C is not that hard to lower, but to lower it safely. And so one of the, the concepts I think a lot of the physicians and other people who take care of, of people with diabetes have learned is it's not just important to lower glucose. You have to level it. What you really want is you want a stable level of glucose, like a pancreas would do. I fully agree, and I'm a very big proponent of time and target reducing both hyper and hypo. I, you could, uh, as you just uh, eloquently stated, uh, improve uh, A1C, and it comes uh, sometimes at a cost 
of uh, more glycemic variability and more hypoglycemia. And and one other point that I think I, I want to make the, to the clinicians out there that I think we're weighing very uh, carefully, both FDA, JDRF, uh, the clinical recommendation panel that we put together, is making sure that these systems uh, uh, take into account uh, the uh, human cost, that is, making sure it doesn't increase the burden on the healthcare provider or the patient. I think we've seen this, that um, uh, the endocrinologist and the, and the people who are uh, treating uh, patients with diabetes have a significant burden on their shoulders today. And I think we hope that, uh, and we're driving towards systems that will also redu- reduce workload. We, we want to make sure that these systems are um, applicable in the real world as well as um, uh, efficacious in the real world. One of the questions that my patients always ask me and other, peop- other physicians ask me when I present is, well, when is this coming? Or they, well, they'll say something like, you told us years ago that this was coming in five years and it's been 15. I don't think tomorrow we're going to snap our fingers and have a system that does everything. It's, it's unrealistic and it's, it's frankly the technology is not there yet. But we do believe, and I think there are two key things that um, clinicians and patients should um, see on the relatively near horizon, which is in the next two to three years. Um, first, in the very near horizon, I firmly believe we can stop uh, a significant amount of hypoglycemia. Uh, not all of it, but a significant amount. I alluded to the studies at Stanford and Colorado, and we're seeing this in a number of the clinics that are doing some of these tests. Simply by dialing back insulin proactively, and having alarms that, that um, don't allow overdosing of insulin at meals, uh, we can reduce a significant amount of hypoglycemia. And the risk of doing that in a system, that is, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, hurting somebody by dialing back insulin. Uh, there's a very, very small risk of uh, ketoacidosis. We think that's uh, really infinitesimal. Versus, I think, in the uh, dosing of insulin, obviously, you can come up with scenarios where you could overdose insulin. So by simply adding some mechanisms to reduce insulin delivery sometimes, we think is a near-term solution. In fact, there's a product available in Europe and Canada and Australia now that does this. It turns down and off insulin uh, upon severe hypoglycemia and the patient being non-responsive. It exists. And we're uh, partnering with FDA and and really working hard with them to ensure that product gets approved in the United States as quickly as possible. On the dosing of insulin, I think that this is close. We're about to do a multinational, uh, multi-center, multinational trial this year on this concept. It's a semi-automated system. That is, it would um, kick in and deliver some insulin upon relatively um, severe hyperglycemia as well as reducing insulin upon um, hypoglycemia. It's not fully automated. It's not going to do everything for the patient. But if we uh, see that patients are spending upwards of half of the day above 180, and if we could cut that, say, in half with some automation, and we think that's possible and the data supports that, that is a near-term solution. So there are some um, semi-automated systems that are on the near horizon. I'm very, very confident about that. To get more automated, we probably need a little bit more robust sensor and a little bit faster-acting insulin. But that, that, that'll come. I think we have some deliverables in the near term that'll help the clinicians out there see their patients achieve better A1Cs, help the patients do that with less burden on their shoulders, and that's going to be a great thing for people with diabetes. I'd like to thank our guest, Assistant Vice President, Director of Glucose Control Research at the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, Dr. Alan Kowalski. 
Dr. Kowalski, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin, and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.